country of Indonesia. Do they like me in Indonesia? 100% confident Indonesia will prevail. Hello and welcome to Talking Indonesia. My name is Gemma Purdy. After fighting off a push for a delay, the elections for the president, the national legislature, plus regional and provincial legislatures will be held simultaneously on the 14th of February, 2024. This will be the largest electoral event in Indonesia's history, with more candidates campaigning at the same time than ever seen before. Political parties are already setting in motion processes to select their candidates and individuals are making potentially life-altering decisions to run. In recent years, Indonesian election campaigns have become synonymous with money politics. In what has become an increasingly crowded and competitive field, many candidates have relied on money to give them the edge in their campaigns. But for a small number, the choice has been different to take a significant risk and run against the status quo on a platform of anti-corruptionism. So why is money politics so prevalent in Indonesian election campaigns? Why would a candidate choose to run on an anti-corruption platform and do they have a chance of winning if they do? My guest today is Elizabeth Kramer, author of a new book, The Candidate's Dilemma, Anti-Corruptionism and Money Politics in Indonesian Electoral Campaigns. Hello, Liz. Thank you so much for joining us again on Talking Indonesia. Thanks, Gemma. Now, we're going to talk about your new book, The Candidate's Dilemma. So congratulations. But I thought we'd start our conversation with a really broad question and hopefully one that's not too challenging, which is how would you describe the state of Indonesian democracy today? To answer the question, I think that really depends on what your benchmark is, right? Like what are we comparing today's democracy to? So I think if we're comparing it to 1998 coming out from under the Suharto regime, yes, of course, the political system is more democratic. The country has moved in a more democratic direction. I think that's fairly obvious. But if your comparison is how does Indonesia track in terms of what we expect or maybe even what we were hoping for at the beginning of this process, then it becomes a little bit more tricky to define and is maybe less of a success story. So there are lots of things to consider in making this assessment. And, you know, there are a lot of scholars who are looking at various aspects of democracy. And, you know, over the last couple of years, quite a lot of people have argued for this democratic regression that's happening in Indonesia at the moment or has been happening over the last few years. And, you know, I'm quite persuaded by that analysis. So I think that there has been some regression. But I guess for me, with my work and the particular focus that I'm interested in, I tend to ponder questions like these in terms of how the dynamics are affecting individuals. And, you know, if you ask the question, is the average person in Indonesia able to live their life with access to good opportunities, say in education or in employment, and are they able to live their lives uninhibited from factors that repress them or censor them, then, well, that actually depends a lot on who they are, where they are in the country, uh, their class, their religion, their sexuality, whether they live with a disability. And the fact that it really 
does depend so heavily on their personal context, whether they have the freedoms and the opportunities to, you know, live out their aspirations or that. That says to me that the democratic project in Indonesia is, it's still a work in progress. And Liz, your research is particularly focused on electoral politics, which is obviously a key function of a democracy. And it's about the relationship between money politics and corruption or anti-corruption in the electoral campaigns of individual candidates. As you've pointed out in your book, this is such a vast and complex issue, which is also deeply uh, moral in its context. And again, this is not just limited to Indonesian politics, this complexity and these questions. But you also point out that Indonesians have widespread dissatisfaction with corruption, right? Yeah, that's absolutely true. And, you know, that comes out repeatedly in political surveys that are done by different polling groups in Indonesia. And it's been something that's been on that radar basically since 1998. I mean, the anti-corruption movement was a huge part of that push to demand Suharto resign from his position. And, you know, it's really had this ongoing influence in politics, well, in terms of political discourse at least, and the way that Indonesian citizens think about their political representatives and the way that they judge these representatives Corruption is a huge part of the way that people think about politics and and whether they're satisfied or dissatisfied with politicians and political outcomes. So I don't think that it's very controversial to say that Indonesians are dissatisfied with corruption and like many populations in many countries around the world. But for me, what's really interesting is the connection or rather the disconnection that comes up during an election campaign in discussions about corruption and in particular its connection to money politics. For anyone who's been in Indonesia during an election, it's very possible for somebody to be both upset about corruption but also not willing to vote for a candidate that hasn't given them enough financial incentive to do so. And that rationalization process, I think, is is really interesting and it's a really individual one um, because, you know, every voter can decide what matters to them and elections are free and fair in the sense that people go into a booth, nobody's looking over their shoulder, they're not going to be punished. For the most part, they're not going to be punished for who they choose. So they do have a lot of freedom in terms of who they elect. But we see repeatedly people choosing candidates that are corrupt and are engaging in this behavior. And so the question is, you know, if people are really dissatisfied with corruption, why aren't they punishing bad behavior in a more concerted way? And I think that's a really interesting question and a really fascinating disconnect that has a lot to do with clientelism, the way that identity plays into politics and there are a whole range of different factors that shape the way that individuals decide what's important to them. We will get into that a little bit in further questions, but I just kind of want to stop there and ask you to fill us in a little bit. And I know this is a big ask, but you're talking about, you know, a system that's developed since 1998, which in a fairly short 
space of time embraced electoral politics as being fair and open to an extent, but also, as you just said, in which money politics is pretty much embedded within the system. So I wondered if you could give us a sense of how this happened, a little potted political history of politics in Indonesia? Is it possible? Well, I'll give it a go. I think, of course, there's a lot of nuance here, but I would point to sort of two main things that I think really have influenced the system in the way that it presents today. The first is this depoliticization of the masses that happened under Suharto during his regime. And this was a really deliberate move to disengage regular people from politics and essentially have people turn up to elections every five years or however often they were held, give them the opportunity to select one of three official political parties and anything beyond that was completely discouraged. (laughs) So, you know, that's where we're starting from in 1998. People haven't really been engaged with elections The whole point of elections in that period was to legitimise a regime that was essentially a dictatorship. And the campaign was, you know, a discrete period of time, wasn't it, during which the parties were able to get their colours out and people were able to engage for that time. Yeah, absolutely. And discussions about politics outside of that period were just not, well, they were certainly discouraged, but people didn't really have them because what was there to talk about? They didn't have a lot of influence on the way the country was going. And so in 1998, you have this mass movement of people who are dissatisfied. But on the other hand, the sort of legacy of that particular project of depoliticizing the masses, which has been going on for decades, is still lingering. And it's been really difficult to come out of that shadow. And I think it's affected voting culture and expectations in so many ways. So, you know, for example, when political parties campaign or when candidates campaign, they very rarely have a platform, an actual proper platform that outlines their policies and what they're actually going to do. I think that's sort of a a hangover of that period. Also, because of the depoliticization that happened in that time, I think a lot of people don't really understand what they're voting for, you know, what what do members of the DPR actually do? And it's not their fault because the job of people in the DPR is actually quite complicated. And it's not necessarily directly related to their everyday experiences. And without having the awareness of what these people are actually meant to be doing, it's really hard to make good decisions about who's going to be the best representative for you. So so that's the first thing, I think, that depoliticization that sort of continued to have an influence, particularly in sort of non-urban areas and areas where people are not confronted with politics on a regular basis. The second uh, more recent um, sort of turning point, I suppose, is, is in 2008. So that's when the Constitutional Court ruled that voters had the right to direct their vote to an individual candidate rather than choosing a party. So this is the turning point that's often referred to as the beginning of the open party list. So before that, 
political parties would rank their candidates and in an election, citizens would vote for a party and the party would decide how those votes would be allocated. So in the 2009 election, that was completely thrown out the window and it meant that voters could go into a booth and they could choose anyone on the ballot paper, uh, regardless of their ranking according to the party. What this meant was that people who previously probably wouldn't really have been in with a chance of winning (laughs) suddenly became competitive. They suddenly had an opportunity to win. And it created this sort of hyper-competitive environment where instead of having you know, one or two people at the top of a party list being viable candidates for an election, all of a sudden, every single person whose name is on that ballot, and if you look at the ballot paper, it's, you know, could be a 100 different people. Every one of those 100 people has an opportunity to win. And so that's where money politics really starts to kick in, right? Like people who maybe would have been seventh or eighth on their party list who previous to 2009 wouldn't have had a chance at all. They're suddenly in the race. And I mean, I'm not saying that every single candidate would have had this train of thought, but, you know, all of a sudden they're competitive. What's going to give them the advantage For a lot of people, it's going to be money. It's going to be spending. It's going to be giving people cash, giving people goods, making promises, those kinds of things. And the hyper-competitiveness that that particular constitutional court decision has engendered has really just shaped electoral politics since then. Wow. And so just to also ask and be clear, what's the regulatory framework around this? Like there are rules, right, that say do not by votes. Oh yes, absolutely. It's it's that in itself is a really interesting question because the laws around elections are actually quite black and white and a lot of things that seem very normal and maybe even innocuous are technically speaking illegal under the law. So you're not meant to provide any kind of inducement to voters to vote for you. And, you know, if you want to be black and white about it, that means T-shirts, that means food, that means rallies. But of course, that's not the way that things are in reality, right? And nobody's going to be arrested for holding a rally or giving out a T-shirt. But yeah, I mean, any kind of financial inducement is not allowed under the law. But I suppose just like with any policy or any law, it's the implementation that becomes the sticking point, right? And the law hasn't been implemented very stringently. So even though things are illegal, it's also very normal. Normal. Yeah. That's kind of at the heart of a lot of your book, really, is this normalizing of this behavior, which then makes it really hard to change. Mm. Um, So I want to now get into these candidates, the candidates themselves. These are the individuals who choose to run for office. As you said, after 2008, there were lots of them putting their hats in the ring. So they had to find a way to differentiate themselves. And one of the ways which you focus on in your research is this platform of anti-corruptionism, running on a platform of being bursi or clean and of standing up against corruption. But before we talk about the candidates themselves, Liz, can you tell us a little bit about your quite unique approach to your research, which really required particular skills on your part? Yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of a maybe a personal reaction to this move towards big data. (laughs) 
I've always been really interested in individual stories and what like, you know, very specific deep case studies can tell us about broader politics and the situations that people face and, and really trying to humanize experiences. Cause I think, well, it's very easy to develop a stereotype of political candidates in Indonesia. And, you know, there's that old adage that stereotypes exist for a reason. But at the same time, I think from spending an extended amount of time with individual candidates, I really came to appreciate how difficult it is and how people can really struggle with the decisions that they have to make. And yeah, I mean, it's an emotional journey for for candidates. I mean, I'm not sure if the research is conceptually unique. It really kind of borrows from this political ethnography approach. But, you know, for me, I just really wanted to unpack that individual experience and how people get to a point where they're doing things that they don't want to do. So the particular approach that I ended up using or methodology that I ended up using kind of came about by luck because I hadn't imagined that it would be possible to do such an extended ethnography with people when I was first conceptualizing the project. But I kind of almost offhandedly asked one of the people who I was interviewing at the end of the interview if they would mind if I came to their duckbill with them and followed them around for you know a week or so and they said yes. And I was like, okay, so maybe this is actually going to be possible Um, And I asked a couple of other people if I could follow them and they also said yes. And so from that, I was able to change direction a little bit and shape a project where I actually did get to spend a really significant amount of time with people and track them over time, which I think is one of the really unique facets of my project. Yes. And also unique in that you chose candidates who were specifically running or at the beginning of their campaign stated they were running on this anti-corruptionism platform. So why do these candidates choose to run on this Borussi platform? You've described it as a form of rebellion and a form of resistance. Well, I think there are lots of reasons. And, you know, part of the book is looking at that range of reasons that people have. But I think we need to distinguish as well, because there's anti-corruptionism. And that is sort of the performative aspect of claiming to be anti-corruption, establishing an image, which is kind of based on this idea of rejecting these negative, immoral behaviours that are so common in politics. And it's performative because it's not necessarily based on what a person actually believes, right? It's basically a rhetorical tool that a candidate might choose to use. Liz, I mean, why wouldn't everyone just use it then? If it's just a rhetorical tool, why wouldn't every candidate get up there and say? I think a lot do. A lot of candidates do it. It's not a unique rhetorical tool. And, you know, definitely political parties use it for sure. And presidential candidates use it for sure. But yeah, that was actually one of the questions that I was interested in looking at. And I think when you start to get down into what happens at the local level, what happens in an actual campaign, like particularly with one of my case studies, it became very obvious that claiming to be anti-corruption wasn't going to work for her. Like people weren't responding to it. And, you know, you also have candidates who have a lot of money or they have have access to a lot of resources 
and they've started their campaigns, you know, from the premise that I need to figure out how many people I need to pay and how much I need to pay them in order to win. And if that's your strategy from day one, like why would you bother <laughs> with like trying to build an image based on, you know, fighting corruption? So I think, yeah, there are a couple of reasons why people might not go down that path. Might not, exactly. So you mentioned this candidate who did start with that platform. That's IU, right? So yeah. tell us about her and, you know, what changed for her in her campaign? So IU, I mean, I think all of my case studies are fascinating for lots for different reasons, but IU, her situation was probably one of the more fraught and emotional journeys that I witnessed. And so she was actually put in a really difficult position and I don't think that she realised how difficult her campaign would be when she was first planning it. So some background on Ayu, she had lived most of her life in Jakarta. She had raised her family there. Um, she was based there, but she had decided to run uh, for office in East Java. And her reason for doing that was because she, her parents had come from East Java. So she self-identified as Javanese. It's that thing that's quite common in Indonesia. When you ask somebody where they're from, they'll often give you the place where their parents are from in East Java. So she felt a strong connection to the area, but the people of the area saw her as an outsider. They were not buying this I'm one of you strategy that she had going into the campaign. So she was very much on the outside. She had family in the area, but she didn't have strong local connections or a network. And she thought before kind of getting into the nitty gritty of the campaign that she would be able to rely on the local political party network in her electorate to help her out. And that was particularly because she was close to the leader of the political party. She had been involved in setting up the party, you know, when it was going through that process. So she felt like people in the local area would be, you know, willing to help her. And that just didn't happen. Politics is local. Yeah, it was. And, and it I don't know how representative what was happening in that particular electorate is of how local party politics happens in other places, but it was it was basically a hornet's nest. I mean, there was so much infighting within the party. She didn't really have her head around who was who and, and what the sort of personal conflicts were between people within her own party. So she had aligned herself with somebody who it turned out wasn't probably the best person to be aligned with. And so she didn't have the local insider knowledge that would have potentially made it easier for her to campaign and to get that local party network support. And so she ended up basically being on her own, running in an electorate that she didn't have a great network in. Um, that meant that she had to hire professionals to come in and manage her campaign and help her. And that also then led to more problems because the sort of professional brokers and um, this industry that's kind of popped up around elections, they're not necessarily interested in promoting the best possible outcomes for democracy. <laughs> 
and they've got their own interests. And so it just became a really complicated situation for her to navigate through. And there was a decision point, really, like if she wanted to win, money was probably going to be the only way for that to happen. And then it becomes this internal dialogue, right, where you're like, well, how much do I want to win? Is it really worth it? I've already, it's like that that sunk cost thing, like I've already done all of this stuff. I just have to take these other few steps and I might actually get there. So, yeah, I mean, I don't envy her position at all. Yeah, you talked about the incremental like compromises, just like drip, drip, drip. Yeah, absolutely. And so in the end, elected or not elected? Not elected. And yet it became an expensive project. Absolutely, yeah. Mm, Okay, so that's IU. But you've got these two other cases, which, you know, this is so great about your research. Your case studies ended up with very different kinds of outcomes and positions. Yeah, which is, again, so lucky because I had no idea. All I knew when I first went to these field sites was that they had told me in Jakarta that they were against corruption and they had said, yes, you can follow me. (laughs) Those were the two things that I knew about them. Absolutely. It's like rolling the dice, but this turned out really well because then you have Tell us about Bontor, who's the incumbent. Mm -hmm. Um, So he's campaigning the anti-corruptionism, but he's also giving out gifts. He's engaging in that way. Is he just like a typical case where it's a rhetorical device that he uses this anti-corruptionism or is there something more substantial about his position on corruption? Yeah, I mean, Bontor is also really, I mean, obviously I think all of my (laughs) case studies are interesting. I mean, it's a tricky question because obviously I'm not inside his head. I don't know exactly what drove his strategy, but I think from what I saw and the way things tracked over time, I wouldn't classify it as a cynical strategy at all. I think it was a very deliberate and rationalized strategy where he genuinely thought, firstly, he wasn't doing anything wrong. And secondly, that he was actually doing good. And so I'll give you an example of what I mean by that. So as I describe in the book, Bontod was not adverse to giving out, you know, small amounts of money to people as he was campaigning. And, you know, I asked him at different points throughout the campaign, you know, why is that important? Like, why do you do that? And it was interesting because he would give slightly different answers every time. So, you know, for example, I remember one time he was like, you know, it's a token. It's a nice thing to do. It's a gesture. It's almost like a demonstration of respect, isn't it? Absolutely. And then another time he was like, well, I can't not give out something because people expect it. It'll do more damage to my reputation if I hold this rally and I don't give them money than if they come and I do. So there's that. And then I remember another time he was like, this is a way for me to share the benefits of my position, to like demonstrate that my success is their success. And so you have the exchange of money really representing different facets of his campaign. And okay, in some sense, it's performative. In another sense, it's demand-driven. And then in a third sense, it's his sense of responsibility to these people. 
And I don't think that you can separate those. I think they're all part of the really complicated picture of why he's decided to give out money. I mean, I do believe that he was genuinely against corruption. I think he certainly said all the right things. He had done a lot in parliament. He had sort of stood up for certain issues at various times that I think gave his rhetoric a a sense of genuineness. But yeah, he was very comfortably able to rationalise, you know, certain behaviour during a campaign as being separate from his behaviour as a politician in Parliament, in the debate. Yeah, those reasonings that you just gave me, they sound really rational and I'm like, yeah, I get it. (laughs) I get it. Um, And so he's like morally comfortable with that. It sits fine with him. Yeah, absolutely. And and so that's one of the reasons why he was such an interesting person to be around. And and I think, too, the, the incumbency factor there, like one of the one of the reflections that I have about comparing the three case studies is the true benefit of incumbency for Bontod was just being comfortable mm-hmm. with processes. He's been through it before, he knows what to expect, and he doesn't have to emotionally wrestle with these decisions in a way that newer candidates really, if they want to like, you know, genuinely stay on, on this particular path of not using money politics from what I observe, they go through a very emotional journey because every decision is like an indictment on, you know, their personality and their morals and their commitment to being true to themselves. And it's not to say that Bontar didn't have that wrestling that may have been a process that he went through at some point, but he's come to this, yeah, this conclusion. So then you have your third case, Liz, which is Umbo, which is, again, different. And he stands out as the exception, right? So he's standing anti-corruptionism platform and he wins. So why did he succeed? How did he do it? So I think the thing about Umbo is it wasn't the strategy that allowed him to be successful. It was everything else about him that gave him the context where he could be successful on this platform, right? This is a case where his positionality absolutely allowed him to develop and maintain a strategy that would have been risky. I mean, it was risky, but more risky for somebody else, for somebody like Ayu, for example. He is the right ethnicity. He's from the right social class. He's the right gender. He's the right religion. He's got, you know, a good educational status. He's embedded in his political party in a way that he can get support from them. And I think it's those things that give him the opportunity to be successful on this platform rather than the platform itself, which is, I mean, it's a shame that you have to be perfect, essentially. And, you know, this is not a phenomenon that's unique to Indonesia, right? If you want to run in politics, you know, having all of these sort of personality and positionality facets in place so that you can be a viable candidate, so people will believe you, is by no means unique to Indonesia. But I think from my perspective, the question of voter awareness, again, returning to this, Voter awareness of what DPR members actually do is really crucial here because Ambo didn't need that awareness because people already 
you know, he's their man kind of thing. And so it didn't matter that they didn't necessarily have a good understanding of what he did when he went to Jakarta or how that benefits them or, you know, why it's important to send a good person. But, you know. So it goes to your point very early when you said about policy not being really at the forefront of electoral campaigning. Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny because for someone like Ambo, he would have been very comfortable, I think, with a campaign that was policy-centred, but it wasn't demanded of him. Like it wasn't, you know, what's the point in coming up with a really detailed policy platform if what's more important is that you can speak in the local language and that you've got friends all over the place who are going to tell other people that you're a good person or Yeah. So what needs to be in place for candidates like these who put their necks on the line in a way, take the big risk that you've you've told us about, running on an anti-corruptionism platform, what will it take for them to have more success in Indonesian electoral politics? I mean, that's a huge question, but it's a multi-sectoral, multifaceted approach that is really going to get to the heart of this. And you can't sort of do one thing without doing others. But I think there are three things that need to be addressed. The first is how can the system, how can the government address the damage that the open party list system is doing to politics in promoting this hyper-competitiveness between candidates? And it's not just candidates from different parties, but also candidates from the same party are competing against each other as well. And, and that's where this intense competitiveness comes from partially as well. So it's what can be done to address that? What can be done to disincentivize illegal behavior? And I think here, we've already talked about the laws that are in place and not being implemented. And I'm not sure that picking on individual candidates for illegal behavior is necessarily the right approach. I think it needs to be more at the party level. How can we make political parties more accountable for the behavior of their candidates? But yeah, I mean, the, the third thing is, and I think this is where there's the most scope for change or uh, activity, at least now, is how to raise awareness of what the DPR is, what, especially at the national level, what national legislative members actually do, why they're important, and why it's so important to select good, competent candidates. Because I think the disconnect in knowledge there is really at the heart of a lot of why money politics has become so prevalent in Indonesia, because there's this idea that, you know, money money politics or vote buying is the opportunity for candidates or incumbents to show the tangible benefits of what people are going to get out of a certain member or candidate or from the electoral process writ large. Really transactional. Yeah, when the fact is like that's not actually what the national level DPR is about, right? It's actually in reality by the way that the institution is set up, quite removed from the day-to-day lives of regular people. The decisions that are made in the DPR filter down to people through ministries, through the bureaucracy. And so I think there's not 
a huge awareness of how this system works and, you know, why it's actually not necessarily the way that the system is set up that you're supposed to see a tangible benefit from your DEPAIRD member because the benefits flow through to you in other ways. And I want to be clear that I don't think that this is a failing of Indonesians in general, like this lack of awareness is it's just politics is really complicated. (laughs) But I think honing in on that particular aspect and giving people a heightened awareness of what MPs are there for would actually help them to make better decisions and empower them to reject money politics in a clearer way. And there are You know, there are NGOs in Indonesia who are undertaking this process at the grassroots level, are working with communities to help them understand the significance of elections, what these individuals do and how they fit in the political system. If we presume that the political elites in Indonesia are not really that interested in embedding this kind of education in the school system or, you know, making it more sort of general, then it does fall to NGOs and to individuals to push that agenda, which is a lot of pressure on them. But I think that's probably what people can realistically do now. And I guess the other thing is also with technology and social media and like a younger generation of Indonesians coming through who are more tech savvy, using those channels in effective ways to improve awareness of these particular issues for the younger generation, you know, the people who might be voting for the first time. So those are a couple of more concrete things, but it's such a huge issue. As you say, we're unpacking, unpicking, undoing decades of disempowerment, this sense of politics as really just a performative thing that ordinary people are not really engaged in or don't have the right to be engaged in in any substantial way. And so that's going to take generations. And, you know, I love that the agency of the individual really comes into this solution that you're proposing here, because at the end of the day, as you said, the voter goes into the booth and can make the decisions and education everywhere about what is democracy is so important as an ongoing project for all of us. Absolutely, yeah. Not not just a new democracy like Indonesia. So, Liz, thank you so much, so much to cover in a short time. And so I encourage everyone to go and pick up the book, Candidate's Dilemma, and we'll put some links at the end of the blog. Thank you so much again and congratulations. Thank you, Gemma. It's been fun. That was Liz Kramer from the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney and author of The Candidate's Dilemma, published by Cornell University Press. Talking Indonesia will return on the 23rd of June, hosted by Jackie Baker. Remember, you can find the entire Talking Indonesia podcast archive at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog. Subscribe via iTunes so you'll never miss an episode or find us via your favourite podcasting app. Until next time, this has been the Talking Indonesia podcast. Thanks for listening and bye for now.